Hi, it's Philippa here. Just before you get to the episode, I just wanted to tell you about something really exciting that's happening in October that Robbie and I are taking part in. And I'm talking about the HSP Awakening Summit. It's virtual, so it's online. It's totally free. It's been organised by the wonderful Jen Corcoran and Josh Baranio. And it's all about raising awareness for us HSPs and also for non-HSPs so that everyone can recognise that sensitivity is not a weakness. It's different, that's all. 30% of the population are thought to be highly sensitive. Equally 50% men, 50% women. That's 2 billion people. 2 billion people, folks. There's a lot of us. And I think a lot of HSPs just don't know that they are highly sensitive, which is why Jen and Josh have put together the HSP Awakening Virtual Summit. And Robbie and I are both taking part and we are really excited to share this with you. So what is it about? There are 25 talks, I think, five each day over the 2nd to the 6th of October. And by the end of the event, HSPs and also non-HSPs will discover the many benefits of embracing the gifts that come with being a highly sensitive person. And some of the speakers actually refer to that as high sensory person. It's the same thing. The days are split into themes, learn, grow, sell, lead and thrive. It's just so exciting. There are so many phenomenal speakers. I've had the great pleasure of connecting with them all over the last couple of months. It really is going to be brilliant. And um, I want you to know about this. I want you to know it's free. Um, You can sign up now. You can have your name put on a waiting list now so that when the summit goes live, you'll be told, you'll be informed and you can book which talks you want to listen to. All of them, if you want to, they will be available for a week afterwards. So you don't have to watch them on the day. You will get a recording and they will be available for a week. So please, if you're interested, if you know anybody who might be interested, please sign up and give our speakers all some love on the week of the summit. I will put the link to sign up in advance in the show notes. It's a bit complicated for me to actually read it out, so I will put it in the show notes. And if you're listening to this nearer the time, you can Google the HSP Awakening Summit. And um, I've tried that. It does come up, and you can book what talks you want to um, listen to um, at that time. But also, please go to the link and sign up in advance so that you don't miss a thing. Okay, that's it for now. And on with the episode. Hi, and welcome back to the HSP Connection podcast. Um, As you know, I'm Philippa. And, you know, anybody who's watching will see that I'm not with Robbie today. Today, it's just me. Although, actually, it's not just me because I am talking to the wonderful Jane Elizabeth Aston, um, and we are going to talk about addiction. So we're going to we're going to talk about all about our personal experience and what we know and what we've learned and you know what we think around this subject. And I totally appreciate that this might be a difficult subject for some people to listen to and you know if you'd rather not listen now you've heard what the episode is about I've given you quite a bit of uh, time now to know that's what we're talking about and maybe this might not be an episode for you to listen to but for those of you who do want to listen um here we go and Jane welcome to the podcast oh thanks it's so great to be here my first time as a guest on a podcast so I'm delightful delighted to be here with you well that's amazing and thank you for being here and yes it's your first time as a guest but it's not your first time on a podcast because you have your own podcast with um Alicia May don't you which is high sensory people high sensory people the high sensory people podcast with Jane and Alicia yes thank you for mentioning that we just talk about all things to do with being HSP and high sensory from our own perspectives and you do. Yeah. And it's wonderful. So anybody who's listening, go and go and find Jane's podcast or Jane Alicia's podcast and go and have a listen to that. And just to explain 
because we have explained it, Robbie and I have explained it on a previous episode, but high sensory is very much the same thing as highly sensitive, um, high sensory uh, intelligence, highly sensitive person, high, uh, sensory processing sensitivity. They are all sort of the different names for what is essentially the same thing. And Jane and Alicia prefer to talk about high sensory. Robbie and I prefer to talk about highly sensitive. And, and those two things are the, are the same, or and they are the same, or they, but we, we all have our own take on it. So um, yeah, please do go and listen because you'll really love their episodes. But today we are here to talk about addiction. And before we do, Jane, would you like to introduce yourself? Because I think you'll do a better job of it than, uh, than I will. Well, maybe, maybe not. But anyway, well, I'll give it a go. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm Jane and uh, Philippa and I met um, over at Illuminance. I was doing the coaching program there with Willow. So that's where I met Philippa. Um, and I'm also a recovering addict and alcoholic. Um, I do my recovery in 12 step programs um, and I'm 13 years clean and sober. Um, I've been around kind of 12 step programs for 20 years, um, but it's taken me 20 years to get 13 years uh, clean and sober. Uh, and before that, I was a daily drinker and a daily um, user of rather um, socially acceptable drugs like marijuana and ecstasy, party drugs at the weekends, those sorts of things. So that's why you very kindly invited me on to talk about it all. I did. And I, um, you know, I've wanted to have a conversation with you about it for a while. And we sort of, you know, now we're both here having this conversation. And uh, people who listen to the podcast will know I've talked about my my mum being an alcoholic. And I, I really felt there was some a real overlap in our experiences um, to talk about. So my experience of addiction is being the child of an addict. Um, my mum was an alcoholic. My dad um, couldn't, even though he had a triple heart bypass, could not give up cigarettes, another socially acceptable addictive substance. Um, and neither, you know, they've, they've both um, died quite a long time ago, especially my dad. My dad died age 57. And, um, and also my own addiction you know my my so given that was my parents experience it was absolutely given I was going to be addicted to something my addiction was food so I was a binge eater and that was how I buried my feelings and uh I also would class my people pleasing my desire to achieve as addiction um, because it did give me something, it filled a void within me. But of course, those are socially acceptable um, addictions. And maybe we'll get on to talking about them as well. Um, but I, I I just thought there was such synergy between your experience and mine, which are very different, but there's a real overlap. So thank you for coming to have this conversation with me. So welcome. I just think these are really important topics and addiction in one form or another touches many people's lives. As you say, a lot of it is really socially acceptable. And I also relate to people pleasing and the, you know, trying really hard to achieve. And, uh, you know, I've got one or two um, others as well in my uh, you know, my portfolio of addictions, food as well, really disordered, you know, eating yeah. in the past, you know, you know, just trying to change the way I felt, trying to manage my emotions. So, yeah, I'm really glad that we're talking about this together. Yeah, me too. And we've both said about, we've both linked our behaviours to the way we feel. And I think that's the other element of what really interests me here is because the more I've learned about um, high sensitivity and realized I am a highly sensitive person, which I absolutely did not know. I mean, I did. That core wise part of me knew. But as a, you know, on the outside, I did not know until I'd done a lot of therapy and sort of realized, OK, I'm not weighed down by all that therapy now who am I? And it turns out 
part of the answer to that is I'm highly sensitive. Um, and the more I've learned about that for myself, the more I think perhaps my mum was highly sensitive. Mm-hmm. And um, because, you know, part of being highly sensitive is that we feel emotions deeply, we process them deeply, you know, where there's a lot going on. And now that you are where you are with with your recovery and your knowledge of your high sensory uh, intelligence and your, you know, high HSP-ness. H- yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that because I say HSP-ness all the time on our podcast and, and Robbie rolls around laughing. Yes, so, it yes, is quite funny, isn't it? It is. So being, H- being HSP. Yeah. What what do you feel about the correlation um, between those two things? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, and I think I mean, my first, you know, the first way that I really found to manage my emotions, which were very strong because, I, you know, we were born HSP, aren't we? It's a genetic yeah. trait. You know, you either are or you're not. And then your environment, I think, can sort of augment it or, or not. You know, it can sort of morph a little bit by environment. Um, but but ultimately, it's like you've either got brown eyes or blue eyes. You know, it's like one or the other. And yeah, so I was born HSP and um, growing up, um, I found it difficult to manage my emotions and I also didn't really get them seen or heard. Mm. Uh, And so I had to find a way to cope with that and also kind of try and damp them down a bit so they didn't spill out onto other people because that was not acceptable. Um, You know, that was largely the way it was in the 1970s anyway nobody's fault it's just how it was um you know that was a time when I think there was a lot of generational trauma stuff from the war being played out you know it's in some ways it feels like yesterday but in other ways it was a really different world that we were living in then so you know there were emotions were not it just they just weren't really very welcome generally uh sugar was absolutely marvellous for me in managing my emotions. And I remember being seven and uh, I had a lot of feelings. I can't tell you what they were, but I had a lot of feelings, frustration. I think just like not being seen and heard Mm. was like a big one. That's a big theme that ran through my early life and teenage and 20s and so on. This feeling of like nobody sees me, nobody hears me. This is really, really painful because, well, as HSPs, we have very deep emotions. We have a very rich and complex inner life. And when there's really no place to even let anybody know that that's happening, that's really painful. So I remember going to the shops and spending all my money. Money's also been, a, you know, like an addictive thing for me. Like as soon as I had it, I would have to spend it instant gratification always as a way of feeling different really I don't like the way I feel oh my god I need to feel different so oh, I'll spend all my pocket money on you know like penny sweets I used to go used to be able to get or like you could sometimes get like four for one penny oh yeah you get like a white paper bag of like little white mice cola bottles you know fizzy <laughs> fish like those uh, outer spacer ones spaceships with the sherbet in the middle yeah you know all of those all the nice bonbons all the 1970s sweets so I'd go and buy a bag of those and come home and I remember like sitting on my bed with this bag of sweets this big bag of sweets and just like eating them as quickly as I possibly could I couldn't even taste them but what I did get a sense of was like my feelings were going I was literally stuffing them down with sweets. Mm. And that was the, uh, the the first time I think I was really aware of, you know, like I've got these strong feelings and I need to find a way to manage them. And, oh, sugar, sugar works. Yeah. So that was my first drug of choice. That was my first addiction. And, you know, and I still, uh, I'm not going to say I'm neutral around sugar. You know, I'm not. Uh, but it's a lot more balanced than it probably has ever been at this point in my life. Yeah. And gosh, um, that's really taking me straight back to the 70s and sort yeah. of UK, um, UK, UK sweet. Yeah, exactly. And, and also the 
you know, real visceral image of you sitting on your bed surrounded by these sweets and just stuffing them down as quickly as you like, you know, one after another, probably. Well, several at once, actually. Yeah. Several at once. And I had this real awareness of like, I'm not, I don't know why I'm doing this. Yes. But I have to do it. And that's really, you, you are really reminding me of that's the way I felt that compulsion to uh, I mean I, I I did I've written a piece um about that this about the the swirling sort of you know I I, I describe the swirling whirling like all those emotions just going around inside and I'm even pulling a face as I'm talking about it you know this real like oh well deep well of like whatever's whirling around in it and the only way to make it be still and not be whirling is to just fill it and so yeah. for me it was more carbohydrates I think just just but just just fill it with something just fill it up as quickly as possible to get some silence some and relief yeah yeah some, some relief and then afterwards very quickly afterwards there might be some silence some peace some calm for I don't know five ten minutes maybe and then I don't know about for you but then what came in was the the racking guilt and the shame and the oh god what have I done and the nausea sometimes quite frankly but yes the shame they're like oh I hate myself yeah what's wrong with me yes yeah yeah and and that is then a really complicated cycle and circle to get out of isn't it because the worse yeah. the worse you feel the more you want to eat to to eat or or, or whatever do whatever do, do yeah. whatever it takes to stop it and then it stops very briefly and then it's the, the shame and the guilt and you feel worse and then it, it you know it, it just oh it's really 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 tough when you're yeah. in it and I wonder, I have now wondered whether the depth of the feelings and the, the depth to which we're processing it mm-hmm. as HSPs sort of really adds into that, into that mix. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think for me, it. I mean, we'll never know, will we? Well, I was just thinking that. We'll never know. And there probably needs to be some sort of like controlled experiments, which would not actually be totally no. ethical. No. The design of which I can't think how they, yeah. anyway, some ethnographic experiments, some things, some sort. Um, so we'll never know. But what I can tell you is that being HSP, I experienced, I experienced a lot of emotions and I, and I didn't have really any coping strategies or tools to handle them nor did I have any places where I could safely express them all yes and so it became about numbing yep numbing them to manage to cope to achieve because that was important as well um that was you know um praised by the people around me family school whatever um so I had to manage my emotions and, and yeah, sugar was really good. And then um, alcohol provided me with relief. That's for sure. And the first time I got let loose with alcohol, I drank to blackout. The first time. Wow. I know. I was 14. That's really and, interesting. Yeah. Did you, had you seen other people doing that and thought, oh, that might be something no. that would help me or what, drinking to blackouts yeah I, I'm wondering go, I want that no but I can tell you what happened I was at a party when I was 14 suddenly there was like a lot of parties happening it was like oh my goodness my 14 year old social life exploded yeah and uh, and that was really fun and and this first party that I went to I remember there was a lot of cider and uh, and and I believe that the boys spiked it with vodka. I believe I saw them do it. Right. I didn't care. I was like, that's just going to get the job done quicker. Did I think that at the time? I don't know. What I did was I drank one cup of it, like a plastic cup, those white plastic cups of yeah. cider. So I drank one cup. And what I remember was, because I went to a girls' school. Right. I was at girls' grammar school. I didn't I didn't add a younger brother but apart from that didn't I didn't I didn't I didn't know what to do around boys at all okay. they baffled me I just yeah. I don't know I thought I had to be a different person 
to be good enough. Right. Because, you know, I somehow got that message. I think as HSPs, we often get that message. We're not quite right as we are. So we better change ourselves to be acceptable to the people around us. So I thought that that would be the case with like all boys, like half the world's population. Yeah. Um, And probably like most of the women as well and girls. So I was very concerned about this and I drank this glass of this, this cup of cider. And by the time I got to the bottom, I just cared less about all of that. And I felt happier in my own skin. Yeah. And I thought, right, well, that was really good. I'll be getting another one of those straight down me. And I did. And by the time I got to the second one, I was like, I can pretty much talk to anyone in the room now. That's good, isn't it? And by the third one, I think I pretty much was talking to everyone in the room. And by the fourth one, I was talking to all the really cool girls who had the amazing hair and the wonderful makeup who were a bit older than me. So, you know, and 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 then I don't remember that much after that, really. I mean, I think I had a good time, but I also behaved, I think, quite badly. I got, yeah, a little bit unruly. And uh, and then when somebody told me, I was like, oh, I can't believe I said that. You know, it was that. Yeah. And then I also gave myself alcohol poisoning that very first time. So I blacked out, had alcohol poisoning, spent the next two days throwing up. Wow. So it was a fairly um, dramatic introduction to the world of alcohol. And, and I suppose... You know, the difference between me and there is the um, there is the alcoholic gene in my family. My parents were not at all, but my auntie on my dad's side was an alcoholic. Yeah. She was not labelled as such, but she was. Yeah. Um, you know, she really was. Uh, and there, there might have been more as well, you know, there's uh, whatever. Um, and, and so I think, you know, the difference between me, you know, with that addiction, alcoholic gene and somebody who, you know, just maybe likes a drink or somebody who was experimenting was that it didn't put me off doing it again. No. And, again and again. Yeah. And it, it became a way of. I don't know, coping. Yeah, I mean, I learned a little bit better not to black out. You know, I did learn that. <laughs> you know, didn't want to. I didn't want to spend. You know, didn't want to waste every t- every two days after every party I went to. You know, all through my teens, like being really poorly. So I did learn to. Um, I did learn to manage that a bit better. But alcohol absolutely helped me to feel more comfortable in my own skin, more able to talk to everybody. And just to feel better and just to escape. And, and what it was, was, you know, I I learned to control everything in my life, I think, because I didn't feel terribly safe to be myself. And I know, you know, I imagine that was similar for oh, you yes. as well. That's a big sort of adult child of alcoholics, you know, story, like feeling really, really unsafe yep. in your body, in the home environment. And so controlling and achieving is a way of, so I had that going on as well. Yeah. And, um, and so when I had a drink or later, you know, when I went to university drugs, that's where I discovered drugs really and really got into those. Um, it was just such a relief to be able to stop controlling everything for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, as you're as you're talking, you're really reminding me of. um Of my sort of drinking in my 20s and. Uh, you know and I think you you've said to me um before about you know who knows whether you would have been and who who knows what the what the sort of the ingredients that went into the melting pot that led you to where you were but yes you are an HS uh, you you know you are an HSP there is sort of addictive genes in your family and you know you were introduced to things that were um, addictive, and I, I saw I, them out as well. I yeah. saw them out because I'm I, also a high sensation seeking HSP. Yes, so I liked the idea of the novelty, the yes. risk, yes, the slightly sort of rah 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 aspect yeah. of it. Yeah, it's definitely new and novel to start off with, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But I think I think being HSP meant that. Um, I don't know. I was more sensitive to the effects. Yes. In terms of they made me feel really good and they also made me feel really bad. 
so it's like a piece of elastic you know I don't know it's kind of like they they it will stretch a long way and make you feel really good, but then it will go right the other way and make you feel terrible. Whereas perhaps the non-HSPs around me, the uh, alcohol and drugs did make them feel different, but they didn't feel as bad to start with and nor did it make them feel quite as good and nor were their hangovers as bad and nor were the depressions <laughs> that they got into quite as bad as a result either. Yeah, yeah, because I'm definitely not saying that all addicts are HSPs, but I'm, I, I no. suppose what I'm just wanting to do I suppose for my own benefit is to is to just in, in investigate how you felt because I'm I'm pretty sure my mum was a was an HSP now with the benefit of a lot of hindsight but I because I grew up with a, a mum who was an alcoholic I, I I I mean I have set my you know as long as I'm not an alcoholic I think I'm doing okay interesting like you know because I absolutely did not want to be like her so I did drink and um I I've never been anti-drink at all and but I didn't drink a huge amount I would drink a lot when I did drink but then not drink in between because I was I think you know you talk about not feeling safe yes I never felt safe I never felt safe being out and getting really drunk so that I lost all control I was never very good with that and I think that's the 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 adult child of an alcoholic sort of I'm not going to lose control a bit playing into that but then when I did when I was living in London in my mid-20s I did really discover the joy of drinking and losing your inhibitions and and being able to when you were talking before about being able to talk to everybody and coming out of maybe coming out of your shell a little bit or, or however you might describe it I definitely discovered the joy of that and that alcohol could bring me that at that time. And, um, you know, I was working hard, but I was playing hard and I was enjoying it to some extent, but it, it, it was always felt like I was playing a part. You know, I was always having to pretend really that I was part of this group and that, I never felt as good as everybody. I always felt, I always felt my place in that group of friends was quite precarious because that's what I knew. That's what my my feeling of, of being home was, that it felt really precarious. So it, it's interesting, isn't it? It's how it all plays out. And now looking back, I can sort of put all these together and sort of see that it makes sense. Yeah. Yes, I really, I yeah, I really resonate with what you just said. And I think, you know, what what alcohol and drugs actually, because, you know, I uh, it's my first experience with alcohol shows I was not very good at keeping that in check to the point where I couldn't even remember what I couldn't even, I had no memory of the night. So drugs were really good in that, you know, there's uppers and downers aren't they and they keep you going and stop you getting into that place and then there's ones that bring you down and help you go to sleep so I you know I use them all really to try and keep going and what they did was they made me feel like I thought everyone else felt yes they made me be able to act like everybody else and they made me be able to stay out as long as everybody else and keep going as long as everybody else and also you know like yeah the work hard play hard in my 20s I I did that I mean, it took me to burnout. Yeah. But I did that with the help of alcohol, speed, acid, coke, ecstasy, you know, marijuana, sleeping pills, you know, like I all of it. And and I, I remember, you know, when I when I got into recovery and, and kind of going, yeah, but you know, am I an alcoholic? Cause I didn't drink in the morning and am I an addict? Cause you know, I didn't like inject heroin. I just smoked weed. And, and I had a really wise person say to me, yeah, but you're really clever cause you balanced it all. Didn't you? It was kind of drugs and food and alcohol and you know, this that, and the other. And she went, if you'd have done any one of those to the, like, if you'd have just done one of those to the extent that you'd done them all, you'd be dead now. And I thought, yes, that's true, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I I used them to help me be like everybody else because I wasn't, I didn't know about the HSP trait. I mean, yeah. I think at that point, it probably the original research was only just being done. Yes. And I didn't know about it. I didn't know who I was. I was in rejection of who I really am. Uh, and so I, I used drugs to help me with that rejection, really, to help me build this shell of performance and normality 
Yeah, well, and you'd already said that you didn't feel seen and heard. No. So you you won't have felt accepted. That I mean, not I'm not saying you were rejected, but not actively, no. But at my in my deepest yeah. core, I felt that I was unseen and unheard, yeah. and therefore rejected. Yeah, and therefore, and then it becomes that you don't feel capable of allowing yourself to be seen because it doesn't feel safe to be seen because you've never been seen and yes. and and it, it it really can ramp up quite easily and quite um insidiously and you you make a very good point where you say that it helped you feel like you thought everybody else felt but we never know how everybody else mm-hmm. feels it's all perception isn't it it's all i i definitely had exactly the same thing that i i felt i had to put on this performance mm-hmm. to be like everybody else but inside, I didn't feel like everybody else. And I so I felt I was broken, that I there was something faulty in me because I couldn't do life the way that I saw everybody else doing life. Yes. And then that, I don't know if this was the same for you in any respect, but that almost became a another stick to beat myself with. Oh yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't do it like everyone else. There's something wrong with me. And then actually, substances and food um became a way to try and sort of slowly destroy myself well and that's and yeah and that's a whole other element to it isn't it and yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you've brought that up because that's quite the dark side and it's even dark because it's all a bit dark but it's, it's really dark but from the dark comes the light absolutely but that is a whole other part of it isn't it that you know we are trying to fit in but in doing the things that we're doing to try and fit in we are really we're dimming harm to we're, ourselves we're dimming our light and we are dimming our light and 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 I now look back and I and I see that when I dim my light I feel as though I might as well be dead and so I kind of try and almost make that happen but very 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 slowly oh oh and now you just said that I got this real like so yeah there's that because there is that light in us there you is know, there, there is that real core bright shining light mm. that we but the the part of us you know in both of us it's you know the HSP yes. that, that 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 sort of makes a, makes us feel that light and that's where it, it it comes from but because we are not seen it's not heard we are we are rejecting it because we're re- we're rejecting that part of us because we don't think we don't feel then this is all subconscious um we don't feel it's an acceptable part of us so we are pushing it down we are keeping it like as, as down as we possibly can that it 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 might it may well feel well. What's the point of me being here? Yes, yes, because well, we're 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 silencing who we really are. Yes, and it's such hard work being who we're not. Oh gosh, yeah. And it feels like because it's not who we really are, we feel like people are going to find out. Yeah, and it's always feeling not good enough. Yeah, imposter syndrome because we kind of are. <laughs> You know, we had to be really to start to feel safe. But you know, you can see it's a tangled web that we weave, isn't it? It's a real tangled web, and it, it it's so much deeper than we we even realise sometimes. I think because yeah. I think we've just touched on that, and um, a lot of people don't get out of it as well. A lot of people don't, and it, it's terribly, terribly sad. And you know, going back to your mom, and I think. I think not all addicts and alcoholics are HSP by any stretch, but I'm going to say from my, how long have I been in the rooms of, you know, the various 12-step programs that I go to, 17 years, more than 17 years of going to regular meetings, my observation is that there's probably a slightly higher or perhaps just a higher proportion of HSPs in those rooms than in society at large. 
Yes. That's what I'm going to say. So if there's 20 to 30 percent of the world's population are HSP, it's more than that in recovery. Yeah. And that's, I think, because of two things. One, we experience the world in a very deep way. And that can, when we're not in an environment that helps us thrive, feel very painful. So we turn to things to make it feel better. And for some of that, that some of us, that becomes a real problem that we can't get out of. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is being um, HSP, we also are able to tap into this intuition, even for me, even while I had a glass of wine in one hand and a spliff in the other hand, you know, every single night, there was a bit of me that went, I'm still working, I'm still paying my mortgage, I've still got friends, I've still got family, I've still got all the outside trappings, but this feels so wrong that I'm not sure I can do it. it I could feel the light being snuffed out yeah. Yeah. before I lost everything. And and it, it's my observation that, or my, I don't know, theory, that a lot of HSPs who do end up in recovery um, because they get to that place of pain, that real spiritual pain before losing everything or before they, you know, die from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, but that's only if there's, I suppose, some sort of provenance or, you know, divine provenance or the window of opportunity prevents itself to walk into that recovery, you know, onto that recovery path at the right time. And so many people don't. Mm. And it's terrible. It's it's so, so sad. And, you know, and I guess I'm curious, Philippa, to like, you know, because you mentioned this quite a lot of times, you know, your mum, you suspect she was HSP. And tell me why. Oh, um, I think I, ah, oh, in understanding how my childhood played out in my adulthood, which I didn't understand until I had my, my breakdown six years ago and went to therapy. I didn't understand how much my adulthood was being driven by my hurt in a child who'd experienced a lot of childhood trauma. Um, and my mum died in the middle of that therapy. Um, and, you know, I do believe I was led to therapy. So I were, or was already in therapy when she died, to point, be fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think having understood a lot more about myself in that, I can really begin to understand how her childhood would have played out for her in her adulthood. Um. I think she could have, I still feel she could have done better. What She she was not a good parent to me. No. No. And I've had to do my work to overcome a lot of the trauma. And it wasn't just her, to be fair. It wasn't just her. But um, also I can see the other side of that, that she is, you know, a person in her own right, not just my mum. And she was suffering and she was she was very much playing out things that had happened for her in her childhood. I'll never know the whole story. There's nobody around that I can ask anymore. But I also, I do know she was desperately unhappy. Mm. And it, and there's just little things about um, the way that, yeah, I, it's a really good question. Why do I think she's HSP? I, I was an HSP. I just think she felt things a lot. A, she felt things a lot more deeply. I'm trying mm. to think of the right way to use those words. A lot deeper than than she gave than she um, led us to believe. Yeah, and I think that I think that's why she drank. I think she drank because she was really unhappy because she was really trying to fit in with everybody. It was very much, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s and 90s, very much, you know, keeping up with the Joneses and look at us with a, you know, you know, a, a nice house, nice car. Uh, the kids are all dressed smartly. You know, it was all about what it looked on the like on the outside, whereas inside it was bloody chaos yeah but, but that but that didn't matter did it if it was no. all shiny on the outside that's fine 
time. Yeah. And I remember, you know, it was very much the era of dinner parties and going out to dinner parties. And my oh, mum would, goodness. my mum would get, get dressed up and like, you know, she'd come out of her bedroom wafting expensive perfume and yeah. dress nicely. Like, and she'd be painting her nails um, just before getting in the car and being driven by my uh, stepdad to wherever they were going. And she just looked perfect. Mm. And I, I remember thinking, gosh, that's a lot of effort when mm. there's not a lot of effort going in anywhere. This was my perception. You know, there wasn't a lot of effort going in anywhere else. But it was all for show. And the more I can see that, that it was all for show um, and how unhappy she was. And she was always trying to be or get other people to see that that perhaps she, that she was something that fundamentally she wasn't mm-hmm. you know she was most at home mucking out and riding a horse Aww. and being with animals she was she so much preferred animals to people and mm-hmm. I think you know I think there was a deep unhappiness a deep anxiety that I've never really been able to understand until reasonably like lately you know and um Robbie and I did an episode not very long ago about forgiveness and I Robbie's really helped me think about forgiveness in a in a perhaps a deeper way than I've thought about it before and I I think all of this work all these realizations I've had around my mum have allowed me to forgive myself not forgive her because she wasn't a good enough parent Yes. To me or my brothers. Yes. But I have forgiven myself for feeling the way that I felt about her and how angry I was and how um pissed off and how sad I've been about the whole thing. Um because actually she had a lot going on for herself as well. Yes, yes, and that's really profound work that you've done around that isn't it yeah I think yeah I think it probably is I, I hadn't really and until I started talking about it in the episode on forgiveness I hadn't really thought about um I hadn't appreciated that that's quite what has needed to happen but I've had to forgive me I've not forgiven her but I've come to some understanding but I've forgiven me for the way that I've been in it all Yes, I think it's so important to do that because, you know, alcoholism, addiction, whatever form it takes and whatever part we play in our families, you know, if you've got an addict or an alcoholic in the family or you've got anyone exhibiting those sorts of behaviours that don't necessarily have to be manifesting in that particular way, the whole family dynamic gets really unhealthy and 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 you know really difficult and there is a lot of mixed up emotions and resentment that can weigh us down for the rest of our lives if we're not careful and you know for me I've had to do a lot of forgiving of other people and also a lot of accepting of myself and I've done that with the help of 12-step recovery you know as I think you know as well you know part of that is looking at you know all our resentments looking at our part in it forgiving the other people involved you know and I know that's a process (laughs) I'm still working on that in some areas but you know there are a lot of people who I'm just like you know I used to be furious that and now I'm not but it took a while um, but also I think you know the the um then the, you know we make amends to people in the 12-step recovery program as well and I've made a lot of direct amends to friends family members you know virtual strangers shops you know banks I mean all the places I mean really I've gone and done things I can't even believe I did um but what that helped me to do was to forgive myself over time that's the most important reason for doing those things actually it's not about getting forgiveness from other people it's coming to a peaceful place within ourselves yeah um you know and there were different reasons you know for me it was stuff I'd done in my addiction and for you it was you know the way you felt about you know your upbringing it wasn't good enough no your mum did did her best but it wasn't good enough no, and I think that's quite um, a hard 
thing to come to terms with in a way because I think we are told that we should forgive and I I I don't I don't really forgive her for the parenting side of it but I I I do well do I I don't know. It's quite complicated. I, it's I think. Complicated. I, I I don't know why I'm hesitating. I don't know whether I do really. I don't know what. I think I would forgive her for the way that she chose to deal with the way. I, I feel really sad. I suppose that she felt so. However, the way she felt that drove her to be the way that she was, um, but I still cannot forgive that. But it, it, but it, it, she doesn't need my forgive. I mean, she's not here anymore. I mean, it, she needs to forgive herself for that if she was still here. Um, it's not, it's not about that. But it, it is quite complicated, and the shame and the guilt comes down the generations. And um, I needed it to stop with me, so yeah. that I am not passing it on to my children. I mean, I will no doubt screw my children up in one way or another, but I'm going to do my damnedest to 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 repair where I can, and I don't want to pass on to them any of the shame that I feel for the way for the way I grew up and um, what I've brought to our family as a result of that. So I've had to forgive myself for that. Because until I became so much more aware of these things over the last six years, I very definitely have brought it into this family, which is one of the reasons why I ended up in therapy in the first place, because I knew I was screwing my kids up. And I said, I've got to do something about this. I cannot carry on like this. And I just think it's just so wonderful and brave and amazing that you and, you know, quite a lot of people I know are looking at this and dealing with their family dynamics and their children in such a different way, such a courageous way, because well, we're we're in we're in a society where it's easier to do that. We've got a little bit more time. It's mm. more important somehow, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's there's it's just about we live in very different times where there is a real chance where you know it could stop with me and I don't have children so I don't have that worry of passing on my genetic my addict genes to anyone else you know I, I don't have that but I, I see a lot of it yeah I, I see a lot of um reparation and preventive action happening around me and, and that is a really wonderful thing yeah and I'm, I, you know, I, I have to acknowledge that that's a privileged place to be. You know, I could afford to go to yes, therapy for three yeah. years, and We're you know, yeah. And I, I, you know, I'm very grateful that I was in that position. And I also understand that that not everybody is in that position. Um, and no, yeah, well, twelve step programs are completely free. Right. Well, there you go. Then. Out there, and there are twelve step programs for you know alcoholics, addicts, adult children of alcoholics uh codependents food addicts money you know overspenders gamblers you know I mean if you've got a problem there's probably a 12-step program for it and they are all completely free well what you need is the time to attend and pre-covid that was also quite difficult because you know maybe there weren't specific meetings uh there weren't actually in every town in the country in every country in the world but now there there's so many online meetings that it doesn't matter where you live yeah amazing you'll be able to get the help that you need for free all one needs is the willingness to try so just a shout out for that yeah great and thank you for that and you mentioned codependency there and codependency mm. was my routine because we all have a different routine to where we start doing the work and and the recovery and mine was codependent learning about codependency and realizing that's absolutely um what you know my relationship with my mother was like what was how did recovery come about for you um yeah it's a great question and it was it was I mean you know I all through like from the moment I started smoking marijuana or weed as it became known to me um I was told, oh, it's it's like it's not addictive, is it? It's a non-addictive drug, marijuana. This was in the late 80s. Uh, it's not addictive. It's, it's one of the few that isn't addictive. So I was like, brilliant, <laughs> I'll do this. Uh, and it, it was a great, uh, really good at numbing my mm. emotions. So when I felt low, as I did often, 
it made me feel a bit better took the fear away took the anxiety away when I felt a bit high which I did sometimes got a bit overexcited didn't know how to cope with that either it would like bring me down it just leveled me out and in the end all it did was numb me and get me in this really narrow sort of window of like blairness um uh, but I did get addicted to it it's terribly addictive yeah it's psychologically addictive and as I found out when I did try and quit it is also physically addictive you get night sweats you get terrible anxiety when you're coming off it the night sweats are really something. The crazy dreams. People don't, a lot of people don't know about this. No. But when, you've, when you've done it, you know about it because it actually suppresses dreams quite substantially. So I had a history of insomnia right from when I was a child. It's quite unusual, but also I think fairly common amongst high sensory children yeah. because we've got a lot of stuff going on in our heads and therefore it's difficult to wind ourselves down, get a good night's sleep. Um, and when I got older, I realised that having a, like smoking weed all evening and then basically taking a spliff to bed and smoking it in bed would like put me out like a light. Brilliant. Um, um, and so, yes, I got really dependent on it for sleeping, but also it meant I didn't dream for about 15 years. <laughs> Right. And so once you stop, it is my belief uh, that an awful lot of those dreams make their way out in glorious, glorious sort of technicolor, a bit oh, like wow. a Beatles yellow submarine cartoon dream. I mean, that's going on and you wake up and go, I feel as though I've never slept in my life, even though I've slept for eight hours. So that's a lot. So I got, you know, physically and psychologically and emotionally dependent on marijuana to the point that I had to have it all the time and I had to smoke it every day after work and it was the only thing that got me through I mean it helped me get a degree it helped me get a master's you know it helped me keep down jobs it helped me to cope but it also took me to a place of my inner HSP screaming at me it's not supposed to be like this it's not supposed to be like this it's not supposed to be like this and um in the end I read an article in the Guardian newspaper called My Life as a Marijuana Addict. And it was the first time I'd read somebody's story because, you know, we knew about heroin and we knew about cocaine and stuff. You know, they're terrible. They get people into terrible trouble. You know, you lose the septum in your nose or, you know, like you lose a leg or I mean, it's awful. But, but, but smoking weed, the non-addictive drug, you know, the people just do it at festivals. Oh, it just really mellows you out. This article told my story. It was somebody who couldn't do without it, but then had managed to stop with the help of a 12-step program. And so that's what got me in because it, it coincided with me being at a spiritual bankruptcy point. So I got into the 12-step recovery when I read an article about it in The Guardian. <laughs> And you just said a very similar thing to me that you read uh, you read something that was like it could have been written about you. Yes. And I and read a codependency. Yeah, and I read a codependency book that was like, oh God, this is like my life laid out in front of me, and yeah. I needed that reflection that that something reflecting back to me what my experience was yeah. because I'd been so good at sort of pushing it away, and I didn't want to see it. Yes, well, and and you know, it, there is also something about just having to carry on. Oh, yes, I'm just to carry on. Oh, I'm just making a fuss. You know, yeah. just there's something really wrong with me, but nobody thinks there's anything really wrong with me. Everybody thinks I'm just being like normal or just a yeah. bit, you know, just a bit maladjusted or whatever, just a bit a bit odd, or oh, a bit depressed, or oh. And then to read this this article in a newspaper of somebody who lived like me and thought like me and used this particular substance like me for the same reasons and it took her to the same emotional place of hopelessness it was really validating it was mm. it was a relief I read it several times and and you know and the following week I went to um it was not my first meeting it was my second meeting the first one I'd gone to well, they were talking about drugs I didn't identify with. I could identify now. But at that point, I was very much about what it looks like on the outside. And I needed to hear somebody's experience that was really similar to mine outwardly 
yeah. as well as inwardly. And that's what got me um, into recovery. And I stayed actually clean and sober for four and a half years. Um, but I never really thought that alcohol was an issue. I didn't, I, I was told not to drink and so I didn't. But I never really thought alcohol was an issue. Even though, let's remember when I was 14, I drank to blackout. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a sponsor that very first time who went, um, she made me write my life story, like my drug and drinking history. And when she read it, she went, mm, there's a lot of alcohol in your story. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I just do that like everybody else. And I really thought I did. And it took me um, picking up alcohol again, you know, what I now call a relapse. And and running with that for a couple of years and it not really hitting the spot quite as much as, you know, my drug of choice and other party drugs. And so in the end, I just ended up doing all of them again for, you know, two, nearly three years. And it's taking me to the same place of like, mm-hmm. I don't want to live like this. <laughs> and so then I came back in and that's 13 and a half getting on for 14 years ago. Wow. Well, what a what a what a story. And, you know. I hope this isn't the same patronizing. Well done, you. I mean, that's it. Thank you very yeah. much. It's incredible. It wasn't always easy. No. And, and I couldn't have done it on my own. You know, I couldn't have done it without the support of, uh, you know, the 12 step community, the others like me, you know, yeah. who I see regularly. And I tell you what else, I couldn't have done it without Philippa. And that is the missing piece my first time around, really was I didn't know I was HSP yeah and second time around I was about a year in it's about a year clean and sober and I realized I was having a different experience with my recovery to many of the people in the meetings I went to many of the people who talked the loudest and the most vociferously who were probably not HSP that's why they were talking the loudest and the most vociferously yeah and and sometimes you know bless them creating a little bit of disorder and I found that really jangling to my nerves really frazzling and also this idea that I should be doing a meeting every day and I should be like doing a lot of stuff for my recovery now I was working full-time in quite a stressful job at the same time and that was a lot to like completely change my life again (laughs) and hold down a stressful job and also do all the extra stuff that I was supposed to do and I just thought I can't I just can't I can't do this this is too tiring for me it's HSPs we need a lot of downtime we need a lot of alone time we can get frazzled by people we can get frazzled and you know distressed by chaos and and kind of disarray and disorder and I realized I was having a really different experience to people so um my you know my my career at that point and for you know quite a while afterwards was as a researcher academic researcher and then a kind of applied policy researcher and so I'm good I'm good with Google so I got on Google and just Googled lots and lots of things and I eventually happened upon Elaine Aaron's work you know the original high sense highly sensitive person researcher I I happened upon her work and I just thought this is this sounds like me and I ordered her book and I read her book and all the pieces fell into place and I realized I am not only an addict and an alcoholic and all the other addictive things but I'm also an HSP and that has been fundamental in helping me to get a sustained period of recovery this time around because it gave me permission to 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 do recovery and follow the suggestions but also temper those suggestions with the knowledge that being HSP I was going to have to build in more downtime yeah and maybe choose the meetings that were um that I that I felt were really nourishing to me yes um you know I go to I go to some women's meetings which I really love they feel really safe they're really beautiful there's quite a lot of HSP women I've met in those meetings. It is my suspicion, and sometimes I know they are. And, um, yeah, it's just helped me to really get what I need from recovery as as somebody in recovery, but, but also as an HSP, somebody who's highly sensitive or high sensory. Yeah. And, um, oh, I was having a real, like, I don't know, real, react, real emotional reaction to what you were saying. I mean... You know, I'm I'm so glad you found the HSP part of the puzzle, and that's really helped you in your re- recovery. And 
you know, what you're saying about recovery meetings, finding ones that suited you. I mean, it's very much like that with, with therapy. You know, I've been talking to somebody recently who wasn't getting on with their therapist. And I said, you don't have to stay with them. Yeah, you know, instead of I don't want to hurt their feelings. I said, look, you know, if the therapist is, is their feelings are hurt by you moving to somebody else, that's their work to do, not yours. Your work is to find a therapist that works for you and that is really going to help you. And the same with the meetings, find meetings that, that suit you. And maybe every day is a bit much if as an HSP. If, if one is working as well, exactly. all you've got to do is go to one meeting a day, you know, then that's probably fine. But if yes. you're fitting it in around work, family, other commitments, yeah. whatever it is, that might be a bit much. And, you know, these days I generally do three a week. Yeah. And that really, that's a nice balance for me. And then I talk to, you know, my, my recovery friends, my sponsors, I have two because <laughs> one's not enough. Um, and <laughs> And, and yeah, and I and so I feel really supported and held by by all of all of that, by that community, as well as the coaching community that you know you and I met in. Yeah, you know, you're amazing. Oh, bless you know, you. it takes some real dedication to do that. And what do you think? I hope this doesn't sound like a crass question. What has your recovery? as well as discovering you are HSP made possible for you now? Um, well, I suppose I'm still alive. Yeah. That's Ooh, pretty good. key, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm still alive. And um, being in recovery has given me the freedom to um, uncover who I really am. Mm. I could never have done that. If I was still alive and I was and I was drinking and smoking weed every day, um, I would be really, really unwell. I'd be really poorly, if not physically, certainly mentally. And I would be unable to um, have done any of this work. You know, first of all, it was the most obvious blocks to me becoming more authentic. So that, that had to go. It had to go. Um, and as I went along, you know, I've also, you know, been in like programs for relationships and I've dabbled with the food ones and, you know, the money ones and yeah, whatever. I mean, I've tried many of them and they're all brilliant. They're all brilliant and they all work on the same principles of, you know, um, of we need help really. And I know, you know, some people can get really put off by the fact that there's the word God in the program and the steps. Some people can really get put off of that. I was really put off by that. My very first meeting when I didn't stay and I saw this word God in the, you know, the like, poster on the wall. And I thought these people are crazy. Oh my God, this is a cult. I can't come here. What are they talking about? This is awful. I just want to learn how to, you know, have like, you know, a nice social drink and the occasional spliff at parties. And, you know, what I came to realize that was is a that's not possible for me because it is always the first one that does the damage. And secondly, that these are not religious programs. I don't have to use the word God. I can use higher power. I can use nature. I can use higher self um this is a spirit these are spiritual programs for spiritual people yeah and as, as as hsps we are often very spiritual people whether yeah. we know it or not whether we see it in those terms or not so it is also and this is why it's worked really well for me um it's also really helped me connect to that spiritual part of me which was the bit that was trying to talk to me all along that's where my light comes from yeah so it's my god you know that it's helped me do that wow that's incredible and you are now using that light to help other people well that's the plan yes yeah. and, you know and, and and yes and I and I feel that and I know when I'm doing that because I can feel it inside and it feels really good <laughs> it feels like and I imagine you're well I know I know you share this feeling as well. It's like every bit of my life, all the difficulty and the pain and the struggle, because it has been a struggle to get through some of those times. 
has been a struggle to be in recovery and then out and then taken to a really, really, really painful place again. And in recovery, I've also had some illnesses that have taken me to some pretty dark places too. Um, It has been a struggle, but all of that is valuable because I can bring all of that to the work that I do. Yeah. I can hold a lot of other people's stuff. (laughs) Because there's not, you know, there's not many emotions I haven't felt. No, you've been through. Uh, there's not much lot. darkness I haven't been to. And, yeah. and you know, I did say earlier, but from the darkness comes the light. And it is my belief that the darker places we've been in, the, the brighter we're able to shine because of it. And I think, you know, that's true of you as well. Well, hooray to that. Hooray to, to finding the light and shining because, um, you know, what an amazing, what an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing so openly everything. Oh you can't shut me up, Philippa. Well, and thank you for being here and thank you for shining your light. The world <laughs> needs your light. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And um, yeah, I think. I think in the interest of time, we'd better wrap it up. I feel like we could talk for ages, but um, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. For me too. Thank you. Now, Jane, we've just done our goodbyes. And then I've completely remembered that I forgot to ask you where people can find you. Where can people find you? Oh, well, thank you so much for asking, Philippa. So they can find me at, uh, on my website, which is Jane, plain Jane, without a Y, Jane Elizabeth Aston dot com um or listen to the podcast which is called high sensory people and you can find that on all in all the usual places lovely thank you and i'm glad to remind we, i remember that before we did we'd, we'd left zoom so that's great thank you and go and go and check jane out um in those places um and find out what she's about more than find out more than she's already told us today okay thanks Thanks for listening to HSP Connection. If you've enjoyed it, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast and share it with anyone you think might be interested. It helps others find us. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave us a review. To get in touch with us, you can email us at hspconnectionpodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you with your thoughts and comments on the episodes and any suggestions you have for future topics and guests. We are both HSP coaches and speakers. And to find out more about Robbie, go to Robbie Lee, that's L-E-I-G-H dot com. And to find out more about Philippa, go to safeandsupported.co.uk. See you next time.